Welcome to another episode of the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. The storytelling show that features The Clearing, where all good questions come to get asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors. A clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. So it's all to play for. So yes, welcome to the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. Seamless with a count of four as I count myself in so I don't have to edit later. Hurrah! So welcome to a theatrical legend. Uh, Tim Crouch is in the good listening to Clearing. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. And digital nomads are us, but you particularly today, because you're speaking from Spain, are you not? I'm speaking from Mallorca, yeah, where I am here having a bit of a holiday and learning lots of lines. That's really my mission here, is to learn lines. And have you been there before? Not so much a day, Javu, as a day. OK, I mean, there's a good story to be told um, about this place, uh, if there's time for it. Because we drove to a place yesterday and I had a kind of deja vu flashback. And in 2002, it was the end of my professional acting career and it happened here Chris it happened in Mallorca I uh, unwittingly almost got cast in what I thought was a comedy but turned out to be kind of soft porn for Sky TV a particular program which I won't name in which I played a Randy airline captain We've all and done some it. of it was filmed <laughs> in Mallorca and it's the first and the last time that I've been here uh, and and there were I was not a particularly happy man at that time. I was about to sort of jack in the whole acting business, really. Uh, and I didn't know how I'd got to find myself with a collection of very attractive model stroke actors, uh, male and female, uh, and a number of scenes that I cringe at the thought of. I've never watched the show. But uh, we had, we stayed in a hotel, and I think yesterday we drove past it. Uh, we drove past it because it was like, oh, God, oh, fuck, I know this place. Sorry, I swore. I know this place. I know this place. Um, and I remember two strong memories of that time were I was reading Philip Pullman's Dark Materials and I finished the trilogy sitting on a beach in Mallorca and crying and crying and crying. Wow. An incredible scene at the end of those books with Will and Lyra on a bench in Oxford. Anyway, uh, and also the highlight of that time was I was dressed as an airline captain and we spent quite a lot of time in Parma Airport. And we had a lot of time to kill. Uh, and I spent quite a lot of time waiting for the cameras just wandering around the airport dressed as a captain with three stripes on my jacket and just distorting reality slightly. So leaning like I was drunk uh, against a wall, just standing leaning like that as a captain and it, things you would never expect to see an airline captain do, uh, which was nice. It was a nice bit of sort of uh, guerrilla uh, clowning in a way. And also there was a scene that I we did in that hotel that I think we drove past yesterday where I, I was a Randy airline captain. My first officer came to my hotel room. I opened the door wearing nothing, but with my pilot's hat in front of my groin area. Um, and we hardly managed to film it because the two of us were just laughing too much. And then at one point in that scene, somebody from costume was in the bedroom and had to just uh, cry out, Capitan! Uh, which, again, is a thing that I will never forget. Uh, that, that project is kind of one of my shaping things, really. That piece was, it's kind of shaped me in a positive way. And it's just nice in a way that it's tied into Mallorca, which is where I am now. And so, I'm, I'm very happy to have kicked that particular bag of wasps. Well, it was weird yesterday. It was like, oh, God, I've been here. Uh, I've been here. And lots of memories flooded back. Strange. And how extraordinary is the sum of our parts and what shapes us is, is really profound. And I, I love the fact that that was very formative, though tragic, though, as you say, oh my God. Gorilla tragedy. Yes. I got invited to do a second series and I had just written the first thing that I wrote. And so I said no. And I, around that time, got rid of my spotlight photograph, you know, the actor's um, catalogue in which we show ourselves. 
Um, and I'd made a decision and I got rid of my acting agent or they'd got rid of me or whatever. I'd stopped that. I'd stopped all that nonsense. And if uh, I may, the rest is history in a really, really good way. Do you well, mind if I just yeah. blow, blow a tiny bit of smoke at you in terms of positioning what we're here to do and, and why I'm particularly interested in talking to you? I, you have to, apparently. I said in an email that I, I, I'm kind of allergic to it, but I'll, I'll think of something else while you go. So Tim Crouch, British experimental theatre maker, actor, writer and director. What I'm fascinated is you specialise in rejecting theatrical conventions. You have said, and I agree very wisely, that theatre at its purest form is conceptual. No need for sets, costumes and props. All exists in the audience's head. Why I relate to that is because of my own joy of comedy improvisation, where it's totally prop free and it all happens like the cartoonist's paintbrush coming in and flopping the colours on for you. Also, I know you've done some profoundly seminal productions sincerely my arm is your centerpiece an oak tree um don't forget the driver you know we have artistic foils in common there's toby jones there's vic Llewellyn, there's chris bianchi so i was just really intrigued to speak to you also i still live in bristol and i saw one of your shows just as i was graduating from the Olympic theater school public parts so you did you, oh yes. my god yeah oh my god great and um, also, you know, finally, you've been credited and it's so amazing that you took the decision to get rid of your, you know, the Grattan catalogue for actors, which is the spotlight, because since you got going on the open road of what you now do, um, Stephen Bottoms, who's professor of contemporary theatre in Manchester, said of you, I can think of no other contemporary playwright who's asked such a compelling set of questions about theatrical form, narrative content, content and a spectator's engagement. So when I knew I'd crafted some questions that I'm very excited about in bringing you into the Good Listening To show, that's why I thought, gosh, when the powder, when the time is right, I'm going to get in touch with Tim Crouch and see if he says yes. Great. Thanks, Chris. So sorry about that. Um, allergic okay. to praises you are. How was that for you, dear? <laughs> yeah, <literally. laughs> that's, I, yeah, that's good. I mean, it's, I've been incredibly fortunate. And that play actually was my arm. You mentioned that play. That was the play that I'd written... Uh, and was the kind of lever out of my acting career, and certainly the lever out of the second series of that particular. Oh, what uh, a great expression, knowing what I do about the play, the lever, the idea of the one-armed bandit to your future. Yeah, okay. as you change As you change your destiny, pulling that arm. Yeah, it, uh, it, I, I describe it as the mothership, really, and that I wrote it very quickly, um, and, and still all the work that I do kind of can be traced back to that thing, which is kind of probably how it is for everyone. I just and, feel and, it very acutely in myself. And full circle, I know that Don't Forget the Driver was your own homage or love song to Bogner Regis, which is where you're from. Yeah, yeah. And we had a second series greenlit and written and we'd got a new director and we were uh, anyway on the verge of making it in 2020 when the BBC Scythe came and cut a lot of projects and that one was one that got cut. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a kind of pay to Bogner about uh, a coach driver in Bogner who unknowingly brings an Eritrean refugee into the country in the, in the engine compartment of his coach. Uh, and I had an idea. I spoke to Toby, uh, who has been an old friend kind of since the end of the last century, uh, <laughs> which sounds a long time ago, but, you know, 20 years. Yes. Uh, and was thrilled that we had an opportunity to work together on that. We co-wrote that kind of thing. And he played that coach driver to mm. perfection, I think. Yes, as Peter uh, Green. The Peter Green, driver. yeah. Uh, and, and I was at Toby's wedding and my wife knows Karen, his wife, of many, many years. So I met Toby back last century as well. Great. Medal so, for you. Medal for both of us, Chris. Yeah, Medals all around. Yeah. So, yes, I'm delighted to have you here and indeed very excited. So give me a vacation, a bit of wee seems to come out because this is this is just really exciting. So I'm going to curate you through and I'm delighted to do this because you are a story maker yourself. So I'd love to know what you think about this. How do you like these apples as we go through? Yeah. So I'm going to curate you through the clearing a tree. There's alchemy, there's gold. There's a couple of random squirrels, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. And talking of Shakespeare, I know that you've been a sort of one man Matthew in notes, if I may, with I Malvolio, I Caliban, I Banco. All great stuff. So um, let's get you on the open road. Where is what is a clearing like for you, Tim Crouch? OK, yeah, I have given this some thought. Uh, I live in Brighton. I lived in Bristol for 15 years, but I now live in Brighton. And I live on a hill uh, out towards the race course in Brighton. You don't need to know. It. But anyway, if you keep going on that race, there's a race course at the 
on the hill and by that race course towards the downs there is an, an enormous seat carved out of one big block of wood uh, and uh, well I would have said the downs was my kind of place but actually I wanted to be more specific and there is that seat uh, a carved bit of wood uh, and on the what would you say on the front of the back of that seat there is a carved image and the carved image is of um, Foghorn Leghorn, the cartoon roast, ro uh, rooster. Uh, Foghorn Leghorn wearing a chef's hat and riding a bike. Um, and the, the story behind this chair is an extraordinary one and I would like to share it with you because this chair is a memorial to a man called Tony Brightwell. And Tony Brightwell in 2015 was watching an air show in Shoreham uh, on his bike when a plane crashed and killed him, killed him and 11 other, uh, 10 other people. There were 11 people killed on that day. Uh, and in memory of Tony, his friends uh, commissioned this chair. Uh, and when I first saw it, which was, I think, in about 2017, there was a little plaque, which is now eroded and gone. But I took a photograph of the plaque because the words on the plaque really hit me. Um, so... It says how Tony died. There's a photograph of Tony holding a drink and a big smile on his face. Uh, and it says this. Well, Tony would have loved the seat and we're sure he would have spent many hours sitting here watching the sky and taking in the view. Then he writes, that it's written, the carving on the front of the seat is also very special. Tony was a great cyclist. He simply loved his bike and spent many hours cycling. He also loved cooking, and his favourite cartoon character was, of course, Foghorn Leghorn. Therefore, the carving is of Foghorn Leghorn riding a bike while wearing a chef's hat. Tony would have loved it. I get very moved by him. I've never met Tony Brightwell. I don't know who the hell, but I love Tony Brightwell. And it goes on, for those of you who didn't know him, Tony was a very special man who dedicated the last few years of his life to supporting some of the most vulnerable people in our community, a genuinely kind, caring and loving man who was supportive, reliable, funny and loved by so many people. You would have liked him if you'd known him. So please sit for a while, relax and feel the sun on your face. If you want to have a chat to Tony whilst you're here, his interests included sport, cooking, and wine, amongst other things. Uh, he was born in 1962, and he died on the 22nd of August, 2015. And this chair is extra, I took a photograph of it. Uh, I don't know if there's any means whereby that photograph could be shared with people. Yes, please, uh, yeah. But, but you sit on it and there's the sea in the distance and there's the huge sky over the English Channel and there's a wind farm that sits just off the coast of Brighton. And I quite regularly go to Tony Brightwell's and me and Jules will often go, where have you been? I've been to Tony, taking the dog to Tony Brightwell's. Uh, and there are times when I'm working on a new piece where I will often take a notebook and a pencil and I will walk uh, and often I will sit on Tony Brightwell's chair. So again, I don't know the man, uh, but I feel like I do know the man. Uh, and I take great inspiration from him and I take great understanding of the fragility of life from him and the importance of love and friendship from him and the importance of a sense of humour from him. Uh, yeah, so that's my place, Chris. Just wow, fantastic and perfect positioning on Tony's seat. What, Tony Brightwell's seat. Tony yeah. Brightwell's seat. Perfect. So um, there we are at your specific serious happy place. I'm now, if I may, going to just in, interrupt your reverie and your, your happy contemplation by bringing a tree into your clearing now. And I'm yeah. going to shake your tree to see which storytelling apples fall out. And this is the five, four, three, two, one. So four yeah. things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention. Here's where the two random squirrels comes in. That's a bit bull. Squirrels, what never fails, you know, borrow from the film up to uh, distract you, whatever else is going on. And then a quirky or unusual fact about you. Obviously, you don't have to shake it in a wanna, but over to you to interpret the canopy. Yeah, good. Four things that have shaped me. Uh, I'm sure this is the case with most people. Uh, my parents, obviously, and... Uh, uh, my dad is still alive. My mum died in 2018. My dad is still alive. And perhaps it would be unfair on my mum, but I would probably say that my dad has been kind of a profound parallel line to my life. Um, he, my parents were both state English teachers. Uh, my dad also did a lot of drama. My mum also taught drama. Uh, but my dad had this incredible, has had this incredible life in that he 
was brought up in a uniquely sort of middle-class area in North London, Harrow. Uh, his, his dad worked for the Air Ministry. And when he did national service, my dad, uh, he thinks some strings might have been pulled. But he went on in his national service to be trained to fly the first jet fighter planes called Meteors. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't really understand this. He didn't really talk about this. And as he's got older, it's become kind of more sharp in his memory. So he was trained in a year and a half, and he's 19, to fly uh, jet fighters. He never flew them in aggression. He only trained to fly them. And he flew them at a time when a lot of people were being trained to fly those planes. And quite a lot of young men died whilst training to fly those planes. Amazingly, my dad didn't die. Uh, he then was offered lots of encouragement to stay on or to go into commercial um, aviation, but he got a place at Birmingham University to read English. And um, just last weekend I was with him and I told a story that I didn't know, which was that when he'd interviewed at Birmingham, the people on the panel were slightly amazed that here was a man applying to read English at Birmingham who, who was a jet fighter pilot. Um, and, <laughs> which is great, isn't it? It's great. The, the, the rejection of all that stuff. He would rather do a bit of Shakespeare and, um, and poetry and novels and stuff. So he, he, he sat out the end of his national service in Germany without flying jet fighter planes, but being given planes to fly. So he has a big thing about planes, which again, weirdly connects with Tony Brightwell. Then he did uh, a, an English degree where my mum was also doing an English degree and they met and fell in love and they did a production of Our Town by Thornton Wilder, uh, which I managed to take my mum and dad to see at the Almeida Theatre a few years ago, which was very beautiful. And then he went to Stratford-upon-Avon and did a one-year sort of postgrad at the Shakespeare Institute. So he got to really get into Shakespeare. And then for, the, for his working life, he was... Um, he was a, a, an English teacher and I think probably a rather remarkable English teacher. I think they probably both were. But uh, and my dad also had a sort of I think, you know, he played bottom when he was at secondary school. And he, he's, he, he talks about that. He's still on the sort of there's an alumni from that school in North London, which he's still involved in and has written about that production. So he has a very strong affinity to theatre. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, it would be ridiculous if I didn't say that those two people have profoundly shaped uh, where I am today uh and he's a great gardener he was a site he was a motorbiker until a couple of no, until about 10 years ago he was riding fast motorbikes he didn't fly planes anymore but he moved to motorbikes so he has this kind of incredible i mean he's much he's much more renaissance than i will ever be he has this capacity for all these different things to take an engine apart and to take a sonnet apart and um uh, and yeah, so growing up with that as an influence is pretty obvious what happened in a way. He sounds like uh, a bit of a Tom Cruise born out of his time. <laughs> I, I don't think he'd be Top Gun, and I don't think <laughs> he'd be that interested in it really. Yeah, and he never sort of thought of himself in that heroic vein. He just had, he kind of had a lucky channel through national service that got him to do this thing that very few people got to do. Uh, but there was no sense of heroics in him, just a miracle that he wasn't killed, actually, because a lot of people were. Um, so that's one thing, of course, my mum and dad. Um, uh, another thing that, uh, yeah, another thing that shaped me, of course, is a company that you've mentioned, which was a company called Public Parts. Uh, Public Parts, I went to university in Bristol. Um, I read drama at Bristol. At the end of my second year, uh, at the end of my first year, I met a woman called Julia, who was in the year above, who was the kind of firebrand feminist director, who had mad amounts of back-combed hair and hands covered in jewellery. And at the end of my first year, Jules and I got together, and we are still together. Jules is uh, here with me now, not in this room, but she's around. And um, and at the end of our of my second year, which would be the end of her final year, we kind of formed a company called Public Parts uh, and we made a devised double bill uh, of quite a politically charged, slightly experimental, probably a bit shit, but we didn't time <laughs> about sexual stereotyping. And we felt I'd written, a, God, it's embarrassing. I'd written a dissertation in my degree about the place of men within women's theatre. Uh, as a response to that, we made a double bill. One was a show with just women in and one was a show with just me in and the two kind of spoke to each other um and then when I graduated we we made the company a thing and we 
yeah, we it became a thing. It became a, a, co- a cooperative. Uh, the Avon Cooperative Agency, what was it called? Oh, God. Um, we got some funding. Uh, there were seven of us, a lot of people from un- university uh, and some people that we'd met uh, away from university, but through university. And we devised work. I think the first thing was was a devised piece about striking women sweet factory workers uh, in Bristol in 1892 called Sweet Girls. Uh, and we put it together in a freezing cold church in St. Jude's in Bristol. Um, like freezing, freezing, freezing. Uh, filthy, dusty, blow your nose and it was black, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and we made a show and then we taught it again. It taught again and then we made a youth show about disaffected youth in, in Westmouth on Edge, we called it. The show was called Picture This. Um, and then we made that just through improvisation with Jules always. It was the director, Jules the director. I was an actor and we were with that company, that company. We were involved in that company for seven years. I think uh, the office was in our flat to start with uh, an amazing administrator called Edwige Johnson, who is still in Bristol. I think uh, she used to come up <laughs> to our flat in Richmond road in Montpellier. Uh, and then there was a room that was condemned in that flat and that was public parts office to start with. And then towards the end of our involvement, it was in Stokescroft. Uh, and then it moved to Myvart Street, uh, the office. And then Jules and I sort of left in around about early 90s, 92. And Karen Hayes, who is a remarkable Bristol person, uh, took it on brilliantly. And then eventually it, it had to die. I mean, it was hard times. Um, but Public Parts was, I realise now, and I realise in retrospect, was the most profoundly influential creative, energizing, inspirational part of my life in a way. Uh, We worked together, we made our own work, we took control of other means of production. We had an old van, we arrived in a village hall, we converted it into a theater, we did a show, we dismantled the theater, we put it in a van, which we played a lot of canasta, we drank and smoked a lot. Um, it It was a profound seven years, which only after I'd left it, did I realize how important it was to me? Because uh, then when I left it, I went to drama school, which I can't put really as one of my shaping influences, as one of the shaping moments. Drama school was difficult for me. I did a one-year postgrad at Central School. I felt that I was sort of, um, I was slightly uh, pigeonholed into a, into a devising university educated regional actor. And I thought I needed to shake some of those associations off me. So uh, Central I thought would do it. Um, but the woman who'd been employed to run that course, it was a brand new course. She didn't start until the second term. So we were completely rudderless in the first term. I was still in Bristol. I had a motorbike, I signed on. I used to ride up the M4 on a Monday and then back on a Friday. Um, uh, and and I kind of gradually, and it was a process that went all the way from that moment in a way to when I started to write, I kind of understood that the, the stupid juvenile sort of dream I had about acting was just that, really. Uh, and, and drama school was trying to attain that, uh, and that's unattainable, uh, really, I would suggest, or certainly not sensibly uh, uh, aimed at. So, so sorry, public parts, my mum and dad. Um, By the way, there's a lovely through line there about getting sand out of your gears. It's always adversity that cranks onto the next thing. Even the room called The Condemned, you know, drama school not quite working out, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that the, the spirit, the inspiration for a lot of the work is, or the things that have affected me, things that I've seen that have really kind of got me energized, have been things I've had problems with. Yes. You know, something that is so brilliant, so brilliant, uh, something that's so brilliant. It's like, I can't, you know, I don't know where I exist in relation to this thing. Something that I've got a lot of problems with is I get a clearer understanding of where I exist in relation to it and what I might do to sort of address some of the problems I might have had with it. Uh, So, yeah, I can look at particular experiences that were difficult that actually led me to where I am, I think. And it's the lovely acute observation of being a, an outlier, the someone that's outside looking in, therefore able to challenge the convention. And of course, that's what you're credited with, which is changing the convention of, of realism, particularly and going to more absurdist, more accurate, if you like, reflections on life. Yeah, I've never set out to, I don't know if I have. I mean, I know that I, 
I, I, I don't sit down and go, right, I'm going to bust convention now. That's never sort of anywhere in my thinking. Uh, but there is a process that began with my arm and my arm was written very instinctively over a very short period of time with no kind of intention of busting the conventions. Uh, the intention really was to just tell a story and then to think what form that story could be best told in. Uh, and and that then the play got written and then eventually the, the play got, I stood up and did the words and me standing up doing the words kind of almost is the play. Um, but there, there are some provocations in that play. I understand sort of latterly, there are provocations in that play about a kind of position to theatre that I think I was struggling with. Uh, and that's why I, I, I do understand why you position that as being your centrepiece. It's the piece, the anchor point from which your version of theatre evolved. Yeah, I've written much more sophisticated pieces, bigger pieces, uh, you know, more recognised pieces, but they all kind of burrow back to a little, a man, the story of a boy who puts his arm above his head, performed by a man who never puts his arm above his head, uh, with, a, with a cast of characters created by inanimate objects taken from the audience and selected at random. There are kind of sort of big philosophical statements in that show that are very small in their kind of rendition but are were very big for me in terms of sort of breaking me out of that psychologically realistic sort of thing that I'd got stuck in and that I felt I'd got stuck in uh, and that was the training from drama school and the experiences I'd had with plays subsequent to drama school and also a sense that I don't know where the audience was with all this so much focus of it being on um, being on the actor's process and I became more and more fascinated by the audience's process and trying to make work that kind of could in some way uh, illuminate. That sounds grandiose, but, you know, in some way explore the audience's process first and foremost. Uh, I try and make work that is relatively simple for me. Uh, how, to, how to pioneer from within the mundane and challenging the status quo is, I suppose, how that comes about. You know, all theatre practitioners that are credited with changing you know, reinvigorating, reinventing, normally call out. Yeah, um, otherwise you get into the sort of university territory where you're making work for other theatre academics. There has to be something sort of, what's the word, uh, quotidian, sort of just simple, simple, regular. I mean, for me, it's narrative. For me, it's about, if I can, I think all the pieces that I feel strongly about have good stories they tell good yep. stories uh, and what's beautiful about a story is that it can be accessed on many different levels it can be accessed by a child or uh, for its narrative or it can be accessed by an academic for the themes and ideas it expresses yes. the meta themes and stuff so but uh, if you hold your nerve with a story and kind of tell a beginning and a middle and an end uh, I think I think you can be incredibly uh creative in that respect um uh what's that's not the right word but anyway you you can do a you can do a hell of a lot i don't think telling a story is a reductive thing i think telling a story is an incredibly sort of uh uh liberating thing and enables like i said all these different approaches to it uh for me the key thing is what form would that story be told in yes. uh, and that's always a long now my arm was written very quickly every play subsequent has been has taken quite a long time uh and that's around the conversation with form and content uh how oh, by the way a, a new title that i've just loved even though i don't know yet about it is the total immediate collective imminent terrestrial salvation what a title Thanks, mate. <laughs> and by the way, that, that really resonated. Just yesterday while I was researching you, I saw something very, very funny, which is where someone's trying to sell some uh, pet care for the afterlife in the States. Whereas if you're worried about your pets, once the great extraction has happened, you can pay $9.99 now to get your pets cared for in the afterlife. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, the rapture. If you are yes. raptured, who will look after your pets? We will for X dollars a month. How did we both see that? That's extraordinary because that's exactly because... what I'm talking about. Because the world is like that now, isn't it? That's how it works. We're just a collection of memes. And is, is that what you're taking to Edinburgh, by the way? Is this your current thing, the Total Immediate? No, Total Immediate. We just call it Terrestrial Salvation. was in 2019. It was okay. a commission from National Theatre of Scotland, and it was a co-production with the Royal Court and with a theatre in Portugal and with a theatre in Brighton. 
uh, and it happened. It happened in Edinburgh, the International Festival in 2019. It then went to uh, the Royal Court and then it went to uh, Brighton and Lisbon and was due to have toured in 2020, 2021. And weirdly, it, that tour didn't happen. And I just can't work out why. Uh, that's okay. irony. I do know why. Of uh, course. It didn't happen. Yes. So, no, that show, we hope, will happen again. Uh, it's just uh, uh, that piece is, um, the design of that piece is a book. The, the text is a book. An audience sit in a circle. They all have a copy of the book and the actors work with uh, a book. And, and you could say that's convention busting, but I would say that most plays, in inverted commas, somewhere in the process, there is a book. So I just take something that is pretty standard and I probably shift the lens slightly and make it more visible relatable sort of shaking your trees to see which apples fall out which brings us back to the structure of what we're doing you're doing so um if this is just music to my ears what's happening we're still in the canopy um yeah. we might be about to move into uh, things that inspire you now and there could obviously be some overlap that's fine yeah okay i don't think i did four but who cares i mean the apples were big so you could chop <laughs> them in half and they'd be deemed to be two apples uh my mum and dad that was it public parts that was it and you know obviously Things that inspire me uh, stem from all of that stuff. And, and I yeah. love the fact we're still on Tony Brightwell's bench, by the way, on the foghorn leghorn on a bike uh, in a chef's hat. That's so such a wonderful image. And yes, please, to show you that photograph later. Yeah, I will send it to you. And then I don't know how you get it up there, but I will do that. Uh, oh, my God. Three things that inspire me. Crikey. Uh, that was quite hard. That is quite hard. I still really haven't written anything down. I've written some things down. Um, I have, well, I'll have to say my wife, won't I, Jules? Um, Jules and I celebrated our 33rd anniversary last week. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, and we have three children uh, who would be my second inspiration, of course. Uh, yeah, Jules was a director, a rather brilliant director. She directed all the public part stuff that I was involved in. Almost. She then went off and did some work and somebody else. Anyway, she was predominantly. And then we started having children quite young. I was 25 when we had our first child. And we we had to deal with running a company and uh, she had to kind of deal with that. And I did as well. But, you know, she kind of had young babies and was directing and all that stuff. And she had been asked to direct a production of Julius Caesar and the start date of the rehearsal was the due date of our second our second child um, <laughs> and I think she took that as a sign as I don't think I can do she can do freelance directing and and a family by the way the I, best just relatively the best director note I ever experienced was someone saying linked to giving birth was Nat Brenner at the Bristol Olympic Theatre School saying very embryonic performance give birth would you love and there's an irony there about your wife giving birth whilst also directing Julius Caesar. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked, really. It wouldn't have worked. <laughs> but she saw it as a sign and then she started teaching and writing. And then she started doing graphic design because she'd been her, her visual sense is very strong. Uh, and then she got into web design because it was the beginning of, you know, the Internet. Uh, and then about 12 years ago, she wrote a novel. And then about 11 years ago, she got a three book deal. And in the last 11 years, she's been writing books and she's had her seventh novel published this year. Uh, she writes under the name Julia Crouch. It's the first time that she's taken my surname, actually. Um, Julia Crouch is the name of her novel, of the novelist that is her. And so sh she is the most uh, incredibly kind of creative, uh, prodigious She's an outpouring of stuff. Her focus is exceptional. Uh, I, we've joked about it that, you know, playwriting, I might write a sentence in the day and she'll have written 1,500 words. <laughs> uh, or I might have had a good idea about the idea and she will have written 1,500 words. And we'll both feel like we've had successful days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had a good day, yeah. I thought about something and it was good. It was a good, And she's just sort of moved out. She's written a couple of chapters. So she does that and she still continues to do that. Uh, she's now, yeah, she's been working on another one. So, uh, and then the second inspiration is the kids that we've made. Uh, and that kid who was born when I was 25, her name is Nell, uh, Nell Crouch. And she is a theatre director. She, you know, we didn't prod her or push her, but she went to Bristol and read drama. She did the same thing that me and her mum did. 
she formed a company out of that uh, world called Bucket Club, um, who had a co-production last Christmas with the Egg in Bath with a production of Five Children and It that Craig Edwards was in playing It brilliantly. Uh, and I know you interviewed him recently. Uh, oh, yeah. And in terms of who also you've interviewed, like Vic Llewellyn was in a public parts show. And Vic Llewellyn, of course, was in a play of mine called The Author, The Royal Court. Yes. Uh, so um, the Bristol thing is really strong. The Bristol force is strong in me. And I feel bad that I haven't <laughs> been there recently. But it, it made me. I arrived when I was 18. I'd come from Bognor Regis uh, with my virginity intact. And I became an adult in Bristol. And I had two kids in Bristol and started making art in Bristol and had some incredible friendships in Bristol. Uh, people who I love dearly and, and miss because I'm not around Bristol as much as I'd like to be. Uh, we were going to have a big gathering just before lockdown. Vic Llewellyn, uh, Chris Bianchi, um, uh, John Bedell, The Desperate Men, Richard Heaton. We yeah, when you mentioned Mybart Street, I was all over that thinking, ah, yes, yeah. good. the company of giants, Desperate we Men as well. We were all going to gather uh, in March 2020. 2020 uh, it was a big thing. I was going to do a bit of uh, mentoring work with um, a woman called Flo Espert Nicholas, who's had an amazing success with a solo piece called Destiny that has been at Tobacco Factory, I think, this year or last year. Uh, and I was going to go to Bristol and work with her and have a reunion with the old the old lags. And um, and that didn't happen. So rather that than the old happen. loves, it's the old lags. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wouldn't, you know. But the, so my heart is very so Bristol is a thing that still inspires me. But my kids, so there's there's Nell who's a theatre director, and then there's Owen who's thirty. Nell is thirty two and is getting married uh, in September and lives in Rotterdam at the moment, but still works a lot in the UK. And Owen is a is a thirty year old sound designer, and he's worked on a couple of my shows, uh, the Unicorn Theatre. He's done the sound design for a piece called Jeremy Hartleby and Ugamore. He did the sound design for a piece called I Sinner the Poet that happened at the end of the beginning of twenty twenty. Uh, and then Joey is the youngest, who's twenty two, has just graduated, uh, and they just I mean it's so good to have those young people in one's life because I mean they just keep. They keep me learning, really. They keep on giving. Our children just keep on giving. Absolutely. Yeah, they keep on taking as well, Chris. Let's be honest. <laughs> yes, but they that also, was gonna, we, we yeah. both knew that. But thank you for saying they, it. They We're all thinking. Also, uh, yeah, give hugely. Uh, so, yeah. And the final thing that inspires me, which is weird to hear myself say it. But last year, we got a dog. Oh. Yeah. And I've always gone, yeah, stupid. Dogs, stupid. Um, cats, yay. Cats are easy. They let you get on with your life. They are kind of their existential philosophers, cats. They're brilliant. And then we got a dog. It's my the dog is my sister's dog's. One of my sister's dogs had a litter. My sister's dog had a litter. She'd had a litter before, and we'd gone, no, no, no. And then my sister's dog had another litter, and it was like, oh, come on then. And Jules had kind of had a, ca a campaign uh, against me for a dog. <laughs> And so we now have a dog. Her name is Uncle. And she is oh, lovely. She's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've, I've had dogs in quite a few of my shows. I, I uh, The show that I'm doing in Edinburgh is called Truth's a Dog Muster Kennel, which has got nothing to do with a dog, actually. But I'll talk about that later. Uh, there's a piece called Beginners I did at the Unicorn that has a dog in it called Sandy, uh, who you don't know is a dog and has a big speech, a dog speech, I suppose. Um, so I've obviously had a sort of subconscious fascination. And what type of uh, dog are we flying with, Uncle? Mate, I mean, look, I, I describe her as a Waitrose dog in that she's not, <laughs> she's not a rescue dog. I feel bad that no dogs were rescued in the making of our dog. Uh, my sister imports Italian meat and cheese, uh, and the dog is an Italian breed, an Italian kind of water dog. They're called a Lagotto Romagnolo. It's very fancy. She's not. She's a working dog. They are a working breed. Uh, they have webbed feet. They swim. I live in Brighton. I swim. So we swim together. Well, say the breed again, because it sounds like she was discovered in a box of Parma ham that was imported. Yeah, Lagotto. A Lagotto. L-A-G-O-T-T-O. Lagotto Romagnolo. So a, a Roman lake dog. Romagnolo. If you offered me a Legato Romagnolo, I'd probably think it was pasta and I'd look forward to eating it. But Yeah, um, don't eat my dog. Don't eat I my won't. dog. Um, and she, I mean, you know, 
By the way, sorry, I just have to put this in. I, I have played General Custer's dog myself. Thanks. Congratulations. That's a medal for you as well. Um, yeah, she's, she's just knocked me out of my sort of malaise, really, the lockdown malaise. It sounds rubbish. There are too many dogs in the world. But I would say there are too many humans in the world. Let's start with that one. Um, I don't mean we should euthanize a lot of humans. That's not what I mean. Uh, but, uh, yeah, she just uh, is present, adoring, uh, inquisitive, Oh, I'm going to sound like a a convert, if I may. Your wife's campaign. No, I'm going to sound like successful. a worse word than that, but I'm not allowed to use it. So, uh, yes, the dog has been a bit of an inspiration. What was the word you can her. say if you like? Because I can always bleep that bit out. What was it going to be? You can, I know, but you know, I want to make your life easy. <laughs> if I was using all the language I would normally use, you'd be doing a lot of bleeping out. So, I'm restraining myself. So, She's those are the being in a pub with you. That's fine. All good. <laughs> the dog, my children, and my wife. And very generously, individually named and credited for what they add, you know, the elixir of, of gold and alchemy, which is what we're coming on to that they bring to your life. Yeah. So now it's two things that never fail to brought squirrels, grab your attention. Look at the two random squirrels in the tree, please. It's all there. Yeah. I mean, I now kind of. Uh, oh, it's awful. I, I'm, I see the world. Much more through the, a dog's eyes. <laughs> so if I am in a, you know, if I'm talking, to, if a dog, I mean, I'm just aware of dogs like I never was before. Well, uh, you'll know this, but dogs are absolute samurais at the what's called the book of now because everything, their reality is now, 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 yeah. now, now. Yeah. So teaching actors presence, even yeah. my ancient European mystic Rudy Shelley drama teacher, you, you know, mm, acting teacher, will I will. He would talk about the fact that you need to watch a dog because a dog is always going to be present. And he would talk about Great Danes always saying, sorry, I'm so big. Sorry, 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 I'm so big. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, uh, if 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 I'm in intelligent conversation and feeling like a pompous prick, and a dog goes by, I will. I want to be with that dog. Yes. I want to be that dog. In the same way, I would say with children, of course. I mean, a yes. lot of my work is for young people, and uh, there is nothing an adult can say or do that can distract me from. <laughs> from a, a, a playful child uh, yes. because I, I it would be a cliche to say that I, I try and sustain that quality in myself and I fail regularly all the time. Never uh, lose your silly is the way I've heard it couched recently. Yeah, I think silly is a wrong word for me, actually. It's not, I don't think a, a child thinks of itself as silly. I, I don't think it's silly. I think it's quite the opposite. I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's deeply serious. Uh, it, it, play is deeply serious. Play is kind of where we should be, and it's the incapacity to play. And I don't mean goofing around or clowning. I mean just being open to the moment and to finding uh, levels of engagement uh, and responsivity. Uh, that's all play, and that's what a child does all the time, and that's what a dog does all the time. Yes, Oh, Relatedly in the world of comedy improvisation too, it's this idea of yes and, yes and, yes and, yes and, which is almost a yeah. dominant state. And I love mm. that qualification. It's not about being silly. It's about never losing or being able to access your inner child. And it's the nature of rehearsal, actually, the, the, uh, the willingness to fail and experiment and try stuff out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, obviously plays are called plays. And I always find it strange, Chris, that often when I was an actor, I did one production where we spent an hour every morning playing sort of handball and then we then we did actioning for the rest of the rehearsal and it's like so it was like for this first hour or 45 minutes or half an hour this is when we play and now we do the serious stuff and and my attempt as a director when I get the opportunity to direct is to integrate the play with the serious stuff so I don't begin with keepy uppy I, I, you know, I don't, it's not like let's do a game now so we can get our playful engine engaged. And it's like, oh man, it should be engaged all the time. It needs to be engaged all the time. So, so to keep the spirit of that play in the most complicated conversations about the work feels really, really important and, and not to separate them into two, two distinct modes uh, of practice in a way. There. And so ends my little sermon about that stuff 
Lovely. One other thing to never fail to grab your attention, I believe. Oh, God. Is that right? Okay. Um, or you can go on to a quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. Well, let me collect those two things. Connect them. When I was uh, uh, growing up in Bognor Regis, uh, in my adolescence, I just sailed all the time. I sailed dinghies, nothing fancy, just little dinghies. Um, there was a sailing club in Bognor. My dad got involved in it because he wanted us to learn to sail and there was nowhere to learn to sail. So he started a sailing sort of sessions for kids. And I sailed uh, midweek, weekends. I sailed throughout the winter. I sailed, I, I crewed for a guy called Martin. He used to come and pick me up. And he had a boat called a Merlin Rocket, which was a beautiful wooden boat anyway. And I sailed and sailed. And then I went to university and I stopped sailing. Yesterday in Spain, in Mallorca, I sailed. I sailed a dinghy. And I had not sailed one for many, many years. Uh, and it was like, oh, my God, because Jules will know this. It will, tell, it will testify to this. If I'm near a lake of water, a body of water, and there are sailing boats on the water, uh, it's like my, they're like my spirit animal in a way. Uh, and I really sort of spent a lot of time with my spirit animal yesterday. Uh, I will know the identification on the sails. I'll know the mark of the boat, the, the, the make of the boat. Um, if I'm away on my own in a hotel room and I have YouTube, I watch sailing, I watch dinghy sailing videos on YouTube. That's my kind of guilty thing. Um, and I, you know, I, and I like yesterday evening, it was like, oh, come on, Tim, I must do something about this. Uh, I live by the sea. Brighton is rubbish for sailing. You can't launch a boat really at all because it's very deeply shelving the shingle. Uh, Bogner is much easier because it has a anyway blah blah no, neither here nor there to anybody remotely interested in this but the thing that is an unusual fact about me is that I do have this big thing and I suppose the, the thing that also fails never fails to grab my attention is is water and things on water and I'm delighted you had the wind back in your sails yesterday how fantastic yeah. what goes yeah. around comes around it was factory good default, factory default restoration it was good those are my two things my okay, now um, we've shaken your tree. Hurrah. So now we, uh, we how do you like them apples? Awesome. We stay in the clearing, move away from the tree. And now we talk about alchemy and gold. When you're at purpose and in flow, Tim Crouch, what are you absolutely happiest doing in what you reveal to the world? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit confused by this. Um, there have been, uh, I think, moments... Uh, in performance that I totally understand to be what I think this question is about, the flow, uh, where my, my, my physicality is in one place, my brain is in another place, I cannot believe how fast my brain is going. Uh, words are coming out intelligently, uh, but my brain is also absorbing what's around, what's going on. Um, there's a kind of multi-leveled state, uh, which I have occasionally consciously recognized myself to be in. Although as soon as I consciously recognize myself to be in it, it's gone. Um, I remember doing it. I, I did a number of bigger Shakespeare parts when I was an actor. I went to the US for a period of my life and did Malvolio in Twelfth Night and I did Petruchio and a couple of other big plays, big parts. Um, uh, and Shakespeare also has that capacity, I found, where you're in the language and the language kind of develops a life of its own and you have a relationship adjacent to it uh, that enables you to to, uh, you know, to be operating on different levels, to be uh, aware of what's happening, what needs to be happening, making adjustments, recalibrating, and all the while something is coming out that's flowing like spun, I was going to say gold, because that's the word you use, spun gold. Uh, and that's, a, that's quite a rare thing for me. 
but I, I have encountered it uh, in my own work uh, when I'm working with an audience who I am trying to keep in my focus and also keep the writing, keep the writer in my focus as well. Um, and, and, and when I finish a show like that, I haven't got an ounce of fatigue. Uh, it's very funny. People say, you must be exhausted after a show. And it's like, what, what do you mean? No, I'm not remotely exhausted. I mean, Jesus, I'm completely, I'm more alive than I was an hour and a half ago. Um, and it's funny, Chris, that I still come back to, I, I'm a writer. I got rid of my acting spotlight stuff. And, um, and I've probably done more performance now as a writer than I did when I was an actor, when I was a, you know, an actor for hire. Uh, and it's an extra, I don't think I'm trying to destroy the form. Um, uh, I love actors. I love what they do to a space, uh, to the transformation of a space, to the transformation of the inside of my head and all that sort of stuff. And, and I want to still sort of burrow into the drill into that, find out what that is and what, what's capable, what that's capable of. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with this new piece. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But um... Yes, and can I just say that was the most sublime answer to Alchemy and Gold. I'm happy that you struggled with that question because that was Alchemy and Gold sort of right there. That was fantastic. Okay. Thanks. And now I'm going to award you with a cake. Uh, so this is where a final multi-layered cake where you get to put a cherry on the cake. So do you like cake, first of all, uh, Tim Crouch? I'm not Okay. There are times when I absolutely have it and have to have it and or go out and find it like a hunter um but, <laughs> but but they're not usually related to events or you know uh, the idea of eating by rote a cake at a moment of celebration if my body doesn't want cake at that moment then what is the point of this cake uh, but however having said that a man of contradictions there are times like i said when i will go in search of cake um, so let us assume you've gone in search of cake what cake would yep. you like that you're in search of I mean, it would be something quite somber, like a coffee and walnut or something like that. It wouldn't be outlandish. So a, a modest coffee and walnut cake. So allow me to award you with a modest coffee and walnut cake. And you now, uh, to go with this construct, you get to put a cherry on this cake. It's multi-layered. This is now stuff like a favourite inspirational quote that's always given you sucker and pulled you towards your future. What notes, help or advice might you proffer to a younger version of Tim Crouch? And then we're, we're cranking up to stuff like, and it can include, you know, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And then finally, finally, here comes Shakespeare and all the world's a stage, the seven ages of man as inspiration for legacy and how when all is said and done, Tim Crouch, you would most like to be remembered. Yeah, uh, never put a cherry on a coffee and walnut. I mean, that's just a ridiculous idea. But um, What was I thinking? Yes. <laughs> there is a quote that I have on a card that was, uh, I used it actually with Terrestrial Salvation, that play with a long title, and it's by a surrealist poet called Paul Eluard. And the quote is, there is another world, but it is in this one. There is another world, but it is in this one. Uh, and I feel that's a quote that stands fair and square beside all the work that I've done, that that the, the the duality that exists, that we can be here and somewhere else, and we don't have to destroy the here to also be somewhere else. They can coexist. It's a really beautiful quote. There is another world, but it is in this one. And just attribute it again. Who said it? Paul Eluard, E-L-U-A-R-D, Eluard, who was the founder of the Surrealist Movement, a French writer. Uh, notes and advice to my younger self. Well, let me go with um, what would I, what's the best bit of advice that I've been given? Um, and it might something might come out, which is which is uh, I work with two men. Uh, Two men, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, two middle-aged men, two white middle-aged men. Uh, we are like best friends, Andy Smith and Carl James, my collaborators since 2004. So it feels like they are co-artists with me. Uh, and it feels like it's a, uh, beyond the realms of, you know, employment, really. Uh, and we, they have, well, I write, they don't write with me, but they, they have encouraged me at every step of the way 
Uh, and of course, the note that I get given time and time again, even at this old stage in my life, is um, do less. Do less, do less, uh, do less. Just do less. Be good about doing less. It's okay to do less. Doesn't mean lazy. Uh, it's not about do nothing. But um, I can apply that to my performance work, my writing work. Writing is often a process of removal uh, and reduction, uh, and as is my performance, a process of removal and reduction. Uh, when I've directed and I've worked with actors who are auditioning, often they try and cover themselves with material, with stuff, and I can't see them for the stuff that they've put on top of themselves, uh, and it becomes a problematic, you know, it's like spotlight photographs being made people trying to get photographs of themselves that make them look as handsome as possible. It's like, I, I'm not remotely interested in whether how handsome you are or not. That's your own business. I'm, I'm interested in you. And the way I can get to you is if, if, is if you do less, if, because you will always be there. So just do less. So sorry, this is a long one. No, uh, no, no. Be less. Yes. Lovely. Uh, Very safe. That might be the instruction I would give to my younger self is just relax, relax. Not an easy one when you're young, but uh, uh, people are on your side. An audience is on your side. It's not a confrontational thing. It's only confront confrontational if you start piling on the material and you start to sort of distort yourself in that relationship. So um, anyway, it, that's a whole other podcast. Um, Which yeah. brings us as a beautiful segue to the uh, inspiration of Shakespeare. And I know that you've inspired thousands if not well you've inspired generations seven, of children through people. Shakespeare yes yeah. so um let's go for legacy and how when all is said and done Tim Crouch you would most like to be remembered so I've just had a play this year with the National Theatre Connection scheme which is a great scheme they commission 10 writers and uh, they write for young people to perform and I wrote a play called Superglue uh, that is um about the uh burial of a climate activist uh, and it's performed by young people, but in the course of the play, elderly people uh, appear and sit on chairs around the space. And the play is set in a woodland burial site. And in the course of the play, you understand that the climate activist who died is not a young person, but is an elderly person. And the characters that the young actors are performing are all elderly. And in a way, these are their analogues, versions of themselves, these older people sitting on chairs. And, and it's in a woodland burial site because the people who are the older people on stage both represent the older characters. They also represent the dead and they also represent trees and they also represent themselves on chairs. So how would I like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered as a tree. Uh, really, I have no great uh, thoughts for after my. I'm really sad. I'd be really sad for this all to stop. Um, but uh I think there is a danger uh, in our culture about, you know, fetishizing that sense of memorial, um, which is not helpful. Uh, so uh, not greatly helpful. Who am I? Who am I to say? In, in my will, Chris, in my will, it, 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 it gives instructions. And it, I don't know if it will change. We made it quite a while ago that I will be cremated and scattered in the English Channel uh, near where I live. And that somewhere in on a bench somewhere uh, overlooking the English Channel will be my name and the inscription, he is with Cod now. <laughs> um, a really cheap, cheesy joke. Uh, he is with Cod now. And the solicitors, when we did our will, had to check back that the spelling was correct. Uh, because I'm not a great believer in all the other stuff. And I think being with Cod is, is as good as being with anything, really. And coming so, full uh, circle, by the way, that's such a lovely reincorporation of the Mr. Brightwell bench. Upon well, that's where Tony said. Brightwell is somewhere. I mean, dear man, dear man. And I, maybe, I love Tony Brightwell and I've never met him. And he, those that are unfortunate not, not to have met you either will love you too for similar reasons, because that will give a that will give a belly laugh. I don't doubt he is with Cod. <laughs> he is with Cod now. Anyway, it might change because it might just be too much, uh, too glib. Uh, but. That's what it stands at the moment. If I drop down there tomorrow, that's what's happening. Lol. 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 So um, 
I'm just letting a bit of silence hang there. Where can we find out more about you on the internet for those that have been listening that would like to find out more about uh, Tim Crouch? Yeah, we've overrun, haven't we? Uh, I have a new show opening in Edinburgh, the Lyceum Theatre, uh, called Truth's a Dog, Muster Kennel. Uh, Truth the Dog, Muster Kennel? Truth's a Dog, Must to Kennel. It's a line from The Fool and King Lear. I, I would like to say it's about The Fool and King Lear, but really it's not. Really it's about the shit show of the last two years and where our live art form is now. It's, got, it's also stand-up, it's funny, and it's also... Anyway, it's lots of stuff. I don't know. I'm learning is this my life. You, is this you flying solo? This is you again? Yeah, yeah, it is. Stage. And I'm here mostly learning my lines, really, uh, to get ready for that, um, because that starts on August the 6th. There is a website, timcrouchtheatre.co.uk, but it needs updating. That show is not on it. Um, but uh, yeah, tr- Truth is a Dog, Truth is a Dog, Muster Kennel is at the Lyceum in Edinburgh this, or- this August from the 6th to the 28th. So um, thank you so much for saying yes and for gracing us with your presence here in the Good Listening To show. As this has been your moment in the sunshine, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I just wanted to plug the show, Chris. <laughs> Which you did effortlessly at the end. Yeah. There. The cherry on, that's the cherry on the cherry on the cake. That is, that's the... Of the coffee and the walnut cake that it's a travesty to put a cherry on it. It is, yeah. A travesty and the travesty is where you're at. Did you see what I did? No, the Lyceum. Oh, uh, forgive yeah. me. I thought I'd made a brilliant segue there. But... Yeah, bad luck, bad luck. You failed. <laughs> it was going so well. So thank you very much indeed. You've been listening Pleasure. to uh, Tim Crouch. I've been Chris Groans. Thank you very much indeed. And good night. You've been listening to the Good Listening To show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's myself. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from The Clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme, or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme, that's chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's... At that Chris Grimes. So until next time, from me, Chris Grimes, from UK Health Radio, and from Stan... To your good health. And goodbye. So, Tim Crouch, thank you. You've just been given a good listening to. If I could get your immediate feedback on what that was like for you, being given a good listening to, what would you like to say about that? I mean, you know, it's bad, isn't it? I am my favourite subject. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's good. I'm very glad that you have a structure to it, Chris. You know, uh, if it was just a free-ranging, rambling interview, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's nice that every conversation should have a form. So I, I, I approve of the form that you place on it. I suppose that's uh, what I'm most interested in. What do you think of the structure and the format? And is there any advice that you would give to make it you know, different or better or, or less crap? Um, <laughs> it enabled me to talk about things that uh, I want to talk about. So that, that, I suppose, is a thumbs up in that respect. Yeah, alchemy and gold like confused me, but... Um, but what an answer. The confusion was great because it elicited an extraordinary, unique response to that. OK, yeah. So then, yeah, then when you listen back to that moment out of adversity, as you well know, comes great creativity. That was a sublime answer. I was thinking, oh, the fact that it's a reverie, which is temporary. And in the moment you notice it's there, it can yeah. go. I yeah. found that very relatable because the comedy improvisational is fireworks of wow. And then suddenly you realise you're saying wow. And then you think, oh, awkward. And then it goes. Yeah, I mean, I uh, improvisation, I spent my 20s doing a lot of it and I haven't done much of it since. Uh, and it scares the bejesus out of me, really. Uh, I, when I was in uh, uh, L.A., I was in L.A. doing a show in L.A. and I got invited to an impro, comedy impro troupe. Amazing, amazing. They do impro Jane Austen, impro Shakespeare. Uh, and I sat and watched them and then I had a go at it. Just pants bobbins <laughs> and by the way i did uh, I, I looked at the history of, of us on facebook with messenger i had tried to invite you to instant wit laughter lab which we because instant wit is the company that chris bianchi craig edwards and and others and 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 have been in whilst we're all in bristol we're still going strong and laughter lab happens once a year in in, in the south of france in a beautiful place surrounded on three sides by sunflowers where the english it's called les sur anglais 
and the English yeah. sisters become private chefs to us as we just play in the most glorious studio surrounded on three sides by sunflowers. If I could just officially invite you to give it some thought, you'd love yeah, it. Yeah, I will. Like I said, I found that stuff in America really difficult. <laughs> I mean, having done the spy monkey stuff and having, you know, worked with those incredible uh, clowns, um, I think I'm probably a sit in my desk and then work it out with a pencil kind of guy you know i think that's probably more where i'm at now at the moment and when uh, we're working I'm, with anyone we talk about comfort risk and panic which will be familiar to you you know this is just about pulling outside of what you're most comfortable doing and just nudging into risk but no panic allowed yeah yeah no i panic <laughs> i would panic I would panic. I need to know my weak spots. Uh, I also really enjoyed the fact that your dog, you know, your wonderful uncle keeps you uncle. present. And you said if you're up in your head, you know, there's nothing to bring you back to reality. When suddenly you look down, there's a, a not that uncle does this, but the idea of metaphorically of a dog humping your leg brings you back to reality. <laughs> she doesn't hump, but she's in that moment rather extreme. Oh, uncle is a female dog. That's lovely. Yes, she's a female dog. I'll, I'll send you a photograph of Tony Brightwell's chair. Oh, I'll yes, send please. You a, I'll send you a photograph of uncle as well. Oh, and Just by the way, the... that that made me think of the world according to Garp, sort of. You know, the idea where the plane goes into the centre of the house and then the, Robin Williams's character goes, oh, I'll buy it because he knows it's never going to happen again. Poor uh, old Tony Brightwell, the randomness of the universe to make yeah, him be taken yeah. out in that moment. Yeah. But, but that it's was really beautiful. It's good to talk about him. Good. Yes, and I love the fact he inspires you and you go there. And I'll, yeah. I'll yes. Yeah be a pleasure to meet you in in the flesh when we can someday thanks yes likewise thank you chris i'll just stop recording there thank you sincerely have a lovely rest of time in france oh and by the way one other thing spain, um, I, spain, I, spain. Mallorca, spain. not france it's me that's going to france sorry it's not about me um i i did i was in a boat sailing boat for the first time in ever uh, at skolt head in norfolk recently i don't know if you know of that place no i don't it's beautiful, isn't it? Oh my god! To be and on I the had way. a I had a, uh, an early life very bad first impression of sailing, so I never quite took to it. Although oh. this was an extraordinary thing. If you have a bad first impression with it on a day was cold, bleak, and miserable, yeah, I didn't quite get the bug. Whereas I'm trying to get it now. Yeah, yeah it's a thing. I mean, anyway. I watch this space anyway. Take it easy. You too. Goodbye. Bye. Until next time. Bye.